Does our commitment to Christ move us to share our clothes and food with those in need, to collect and pay our fair share of taxes, and to be content with our pay? Or are we involved in a pious religious ritual that never touches our covetous pride and selfish passion? Our Bible teacher, Dave Wordson, introduces us to a preacher who did not wear designer clothes or drive expensive cars or live in a posh mansion. This preacher preached to change lives, not to please his audience. A messenger whose message powerfully changed the lives of others, including his own. We've been studying so far in the life of Christ about the birth of Christ and about the one anecdote from his childhood. It's an amazing thing. We skip all the way from the time that he's 12 until the time that he's around 30, right around the age of 30. And so we have all those silent years where in the inspired text, we really don't have much of a message. We have very little knowledge. Uh, some of the writers in the second and third century felt very badly about that. And so you can read in some of the pseudepigrapha, uh, some of the, uh, the gospels that come from the second and third century, some very strange stories, uh, and yet none of them can really be authenticated. When we op open up to Luke chapter 3, we skip those years from the time of 12 to 30. And then Luke introduces a character that we were introduced to in his birth. But if Jesus' childhood was silent, the childhood of John the Baptist was even more silent. But in chapter 3, verse 1, we have this strange New Testament prophet, this bridge figure from the Old Testament to the New. He's introduced to us in verse 1 of chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, he was tetrarch of Abilene. We know very little about him. That's about it. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. In verses 1 through 2 and verse 1 were introduced to the setting in which Jesus is going to come on the scene. And Dr. Luke takes pains for us to understand the kind of a political and religious backdrop that was going to greet the Messiah. What do you know? I'm not going to ask you about what you know about Tiberius, probably not much. But Tiberius was the ruling emperor during this time. Much of the time, he kind of took time out and let some of his sidekicks and cohorts run things in Rome. He was kind of a passive leader, but then near the end of his reign, he grabbed a hold. So about the time of the crucifixion, he was ruling very actively. Now, Pilate, what do you know about Pilate? Probably you can fill in the blanks a little bit more with Pilate. Pilate in the trial of Christ comes on as someone that uh, is very much afraid of the Jews. He's a very much of a politician that wants to be sure to play both ends against the middle. He's very much afraid of standing up for what's right if it might cost him his neck. But earlier in the, in the rulership of Pilate, when he was made the procurator, Pilate was much more aggressive. Uh, he was a very proud Roman. He had very little understanding of the Jewish people. He would march his Roman legions into Jerusalem with their banners flying 
and their standards raised high, which was an abomination to the Jews. And when the Jews rebelled against that, he would execute several Jews. And he was very much of a proud, boisterous Roman ruler. And so when you think of the backdrop, that's kind of a political situation that we're going to look at the life of Christ against that backdrop. What about Herod Antipas? Well, Herod was one of the sons of Herod the Great, and Herod Antipas was not nearly as gifted as his father. He was not nearly as gifted a builder. He was not nearly as gifted a ruler. And yet he had all the ruthless quality of his father, Herod the Great. In fact, he was a very immoral man. He went to stay with his brother Philip for a period of time. And as he was staying with brother Philip, uh, Philip's wife, evidently, I don't know whether she was that good looking or not, but uh, they started having an affair. And Philip, uh, Herod, Antipas, and Herodias got together. Herodias divorced Philip and later went on to marry this Herod Antipas. And we're going to need to follow that story because this is the Herodias who had the daughter Salome who danced before Herod Antipas. This is the Herod who went on to cut off the head of John the Baptist. And so when we're, when we're told that these were in the days of Pilate, in the days of Herod, we need to picture a scene of political rulers that are ruthless, that are immoral, the times are dark. Do any of you ever get discouraged when you read about all the scandals? And as a believer, you just start to say, man, if only we could have the good old days. How many of you have ever thought that? If only we could go back to the really good old days when the men were strong and they were courageous and they were pure and they were powerful rulers and they, and they stood for what was right like King Arthur, right? You see, that is one of the biggest misconceptions that can ever come upon us. And, I, you know, one of the things that amazes me is that believers tend to get discouraged thinking, oh, no, things are getting so bad. I don't know how we're going to make it. And what I want you to understand as we begin studying the, the earthly ministry of Jesus, Luke tells us Jesus is going to be proclaiming in a very dark world. Herod Antipas could compete with anybody you've met, any politician you've met, that's cunning, that tells lies, that's immoral, that tries to play both ends against the middle. Herod Antipas was that kind of a person. And John the Baptist comes on the scene with that kind of a political backdrop. You say, well, Dave, what about all the religious leaders today? You know, I long for the good old days where we really had great religious leaders who led the nation wisely in a very godly way. Well, look what the two... Uh, religious leaders that Dr. Luke mentions in verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John. Now, what do you know about Annas and Caiaphas? Well, Annas is the, is the father. Caiaphas is the son-in-law. And Annas starts ruling early in the life of Jesus when he was just a boy. He was a powerful man. The Romans deposed him. He wasn't Evidently, quite as good a politician as Herod the Great or Herod Antipas. He got out of disfavor with Rome. So Rome, even though the Jewish high priesthood was supposed to be a lifelong commitment, the Romans didn't care too much about those traditions. They fired Annas. And they put in a series of his sons. One was Eliezer. And they didn't like him, so they got rid of him and put in three or four other sons. And finally, they put his son-in-law in, Caiaphas. 
And Caiaphas is going to be the high priest when Jesus is brought to trial. But you'll notice as you're studying the Gospels that sometimes it will refer to Annas as being the high priest. And some people will jump in that and say, man, you see there, the Bible is, is deceptive. It doesn't know what the history is because one time it says Caiaphas is the high priest. Another time it says Annas is the high priest. How could that ever be? Well, the reality of the matter is that the Scripture is giving you a profound insight into what's going on for real. You see, Caiaphas, the son-in-law, was the designated Roman high priest over the Jewish people. But because the priesthood was supposed to be a lifelong commitment, the Jewish people still looked to his father-in-law as the true high priest. And the power behind all of these sons and behind the son-in-law is Annas. Now, what kind of religious leaders were they? You know, we think we have problems with our religious leadership and we bemoan some of the immorality, some of the stealing, some of the sticky fingers of our religious leaders. Annas and Caiaphas were exactly those kind of people. In fact, Caiaphas is going to stand up at the trial of Jesus and say, well, someone's got to die in order to preserve the nation. In other words, in order to keep our nation, we need to crucify an innocent man because somehow out of that evil, good will come. Now, the Lord turned that around to make it an unbelievable prophecy. But the insight it gives us into Caiaphas' character is that he was ruthless. He was willing to do anything to keep himself in power. And that's the backdrop. As we look at point number one here, the political and religious opposition, right at the very beginning of this gospel, we have the political leaders, Pilate and Herod Antipas, and they're going to cast a shadow of a cross over the ministry of Jesus from the very beginning. Annas and Caiaphas, very early in the life of Christ, are going to begin to plot and to scheme to take the life of Christ. And so I want you to see in this backdrop, as Luke begins to tell us the story of the life of Christ, from the very beginning of that ministry, the shadow of a cross is cast over the life of Jesus. John the Baptist in this chapter in many ways becomes just like a preliminary story because we're going to begin with John being a preacher in the wilderness and we're going to end with him being imprisoned in jail. And the life of, Her of, of John the Baptist becomes like a foretaste of what's going to happen in the life of Christ. Now what does that mean to all of us? What it means is that as you look at this backdrop, it's dark, it's conniving, it's murderous, it's immoral, and we could throw up our hands in exasperation and say, what in the world can we do? What in the world is God doing? And Luke writes over that, what in the world is God doing? The word of the Lord came. You see that in the text? Look at it. During the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came. You see, right in the dark times, right in the times of hopelessness, that's many times when the word of the Lord comes. You know, when I read that little phrase, the word of the Lord came, and being an Old Testament major, I can't help but think, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came upon Isaiah. It's exactly the same kind of a phrase. And what it does is put this John the Baptist right in the line with all of these great prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, and like an Old Testament prophet that hasn't spoken in 400 years, suddenly God begins to speak to his people again. Right against this terrible oppression, 
Right against this hopeless political and religious backdrop, the word of the Lord came to this John who was the son of Zechariah in the desert. Let's look at John's message a little bit in verse 3. It says, He went into all the country around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of, of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, every valley shall be filled in, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John came into the country around Jordan. He came into the desert. And I, I, I never can read those words without being reminded of a time when we were on a trip to Israel and Mary and I had been in Amman, Jordan, spent a couple days going down to Petra. And then we got in a bus up in Amman and drove down through the Rift Valley, went down about 2,000 feet, right down by the Dead Sea. It's an interesting little topography in this area. There's desert all around, desert up on the hills, desert, in fact, down by... Uh, this area is where Masada is, and Qumran is right nearby. You've got this unbelievable desert, rugged terrain. But down by the Jordan River, it's like a jungle because the Jordan provides the nourishment. You've got palm trees growing, and lots of fruit grows down in this area. And probably right where the, red, where the Jordan River gets ready to flow into the Dead Sea, there in that area is probably where John the Baptist carried out his ministry. And I'll never forget my dad, we got hung up on the bus. And the Israelis were having trouble checking for bombs and everything, so we were going to have to just sit for about an hour. And my dad says, Dave, you need to get up and teach. And what a setting to be able to get up and open up to Luke chapter 3 and to be able to say, John the Baptist went preaching in the wilderness of Judea around the Jordan, the terrain of the Jordan, because the people could look out and see this moonscape and see the ruggedness and the rocks that were all present. And what was John the Baptist's job? John the Baptist, you could, whenever you think of John the Baptist from now on out, I want you to think of the tiller, of the tiller. Now my neighbor was very kind. Tommy came a few weeks ago and he took his rototiller and he went into my garden which hadn't been plowed up in a couple years and he took that rototiller and you know, Rum like that and started spinning that dirt. And at first when you start doing that, it's real rough and it's rocky. And here in Midlothian, you end up, you know, just kind of breaking all the teeth on your tiller and everything else. And yet finally, if you keep working that soil, you can get it broken up enough and get that hardness out of it that eventually it can look like Ed Wilson's garden. And it will be very fine. It will be very, you know, beautiful soil. I've often gone out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and you'll go out with an old farmer, like an Amish farmer, and he'll take this dirt and hold it in his hand, and it's just beautiful, fine powder, unbelievable in the way that it's been worked. John the Baptist was God's rototiller in the first century. And that's the idea of him crying out in the wilderness. God brought everything together. And he brought John the Baptist into the wilderness of the Jordan. But what he really brought him into was the wilderness of the people's hearts. You know, you might think that the hearts are hard today. Hearts were like stone in the first century. 
The religious leaders, the political leaders that we're just looking at were ruthless and stealing and immoral. The people, for the most part, were discouraged. They were despondent. They hated being under the tyranny of Rome. And their hearts were hard. Their religion had become formal. It had become just going through the motions. In fact, the priests were stealing from the people, which made the people resist and resent the sacrifices that they brought. If ever there was a time when people's hearts were like stone, it was in the first century. And John the Baptist came into the wilderness and started crying out to the wilderness of people's hearts. And what he was doing is, is he was trying to get the soil soft. He was trying to get it tilled up so that when the Messiah came and the seeds of the kingdom were planted, those seeds would not be put on a stone where the rain could come and wash it away. But instead, because of John the Baptist's ministry, the soil could be pulverized, the seeds of the messianic kingdom could be planted, and it could come to fruition. That's the way I want you to think of John the Baptist's ministry. He was God's rototiller in the first century. Now, when I say that, when you think of some of the stony hearts, I want us to think a little bit about what do we believe about the power of our message for today? You see, every single week and every single day as we live our lives, we come in contact with people who, for the most part, seem like they have heart of stone. Anybody ever, as I talk to you now, do you think of some stony hearts? Now, how do you feel about those stony hearts? Something that I notice a lot of believers doing today is they look at someone who's hard. They look at someone whose heart is like stone, and they feel it's hopeless. They feel like, what could ever happen? And that's where the Word of God can bring so much insight and reality because that is a lie. It is a very false thing to believe that God can't change a life, that God can't change a heart. You see, the whole point of the gospel of the kingdom is that God delights in coming into hearts of stone. You know, I think one of the most extreme examples that I've ever seen of this was that like when you go into like a McDonald's or something, and back in the 60s when you went into a McDonald's, you might see a bunch of hippies coming in. Our tendency as believers is to see these smelly, dirty kind of people and say, they'll never listen. They'll never, they'll never change. In fact, to be honest with you, it's very easy for us as believers to go, I don't even want them to change, man. They're, they're not good enough for us. That's a terrible attitude. Terrible, terrible attitude. And I find it creeps even into my own heart. And the Lord really convicts me about that because one of my closest friends, a very good friend over the years that the Lord has blessed mightily, used to be just like that. The first time Tassos, the first time I ever saw Tassos, like I've shared with you in the past, I walked into the, the greenhouse, what we call the greenhouse at Word of Life Island, and he was combing this long trusses down, you know, way down over his shoulders. And you would have said, man, Tassos will never be changed. He'll never come to know Christ. His heart was wide open to the gospel. His heart was very much ready to hear the message. 
And I can't help but, but think again and again and again, sometimes you can be riding through town. How many of you have ever done this? I know I've done it. You, you go riding through town, and you see a bunch of teenagers over in the parking lot. What do you all think? It's late at night. They're all around their parking. They're all around their, uh, their trucks. What do you all think? What are some of the comments in your car? I bet it goes something like this. All those crazy kids again. There they are. They're just drunk in the parking lot. Why don't the police do something? Does that sound like familiar? Have you ever thought of the fact, maybe you ought to get out. Maybe we ought to stop. And get out there. and Get to know some of those kids a little bit. They won't like you. They'll tell you to get lost. But they need somebody to care. We have the idea that God just works in certain kinds of people's hearts. The straight kids. The straight people. The good religious people. Let's not ruin our town. And never shall the straights work with the thugs. And as a church family, the message of John the Baptist needs to grip hold of us. The point of the gospel of the kingdom is to cry out in the desert. To cry out in the places where you least expect there to be any response. And I want us to really pray about that. I want us to start to really pray because that's where it begins. You see, the moving in the Spirit begins when people start to pray about the wilderness. When they start to pray about what the power of the kingdom can do in the hearts and lives of people you least expect. I would encourage you to have a stony ground section of our prayer list. Praying for the stony ground. You know who that is? That's your boss that you swear in a million years couldn't come to know the Savior. You start praying for that individual every single day and ask God, say, Lord, it's going to take an absolute miracle to get this person born again. And that's a good prayer. You know what? Because it takes an absolute miracle to get any of us born again. And we just forget that. You see, those of us that were raised in all this stuff, we think our hearts are pretty soft. I think a lot of ways our hearts are even more camouflaged because all the stone has some nice soft dirt over the top of it and it takes a long time to really face what's inside without Christ. And that's the kind of a man that John was. He cried out to people that you'd least expect to respond and he wasn't afraid to do it. Now what did he preach? Let's look what he preached. It said that he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it speaks about the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, which speaks about a desert and a hilly country where there's no way you could ever get through. And it seems that John is the great rototiller, the great Laterno earth-moving machine that's getting the highway ready so that when the Messiah comes, he'll be able to move into the hearts of people and touch many lives. That's the point of Isaiah 40's prophecy. But I want to bring out putting together the Gospels from Matthew, from Luke, and from Mark, bringing together what all three Gospels say about the essence of John's message. I want you to get a hold of three words because they bring together the meaning of John's ministry. The first word I want you to think of is a word that I think many believers are afraid of today. It's the word repentance. In fact, I can remember when I was in seminary, we'd have discussions about, you know, repentance. And the, the basic fundamental meaning of repentance 
is the idea of turning around. In fact, in Hebrew, the word that's, that's used in the Old Testament for repentance is the literal word that means to turn. It means to turn around. But I remember hearing some long, extensive discussions saying, no, we're not talking about you know, real crying necessarily. We're not talking about a real emotional response. What we're talking about is just a decision to turn around. In studying this word carefully this week, I beg to differ with that. And I think it's something that we need to be very, very careful not to do. You see, many times we're divorcing our head and our heart and our will. And what I want you to get a hold of this word for repent, I want us to put it in this context. John the Apostle was speaking to a Jewish audience. And I want to tell you some things about this Jewish audience. They were proud. They would go around, we're Jews. And if you were a Samaritan, you dirty Samaritans, we don't want to have anything to do with you. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know how you're worshiping. You're scum. If you were a Gentile, a lot of these Jewish people, especially the Pharisees, they wouldn't even touch you. Many, if they rubbed up against you in the marketplace, they would go home and wash it off. Boy, they had a real love and concern for people, didn't they? But they were the people of God. They were disciplined. They were doing good works. They were going to the synagogue. They were sacrificing in the temple. And they were proud of it. And you know what John the Baptist preached to them? You see, the Jews had a custom. The Jews had a custom that if you wanted to get into the people of God, if you wanted to become Jewish, if one of you scum, the goyim, the people of the land, if you Gentiles wanted to get into the kingdom of God, if you wanted to become Jewish, what you needed to do was you needed to be baptized. And by being baptized, you would declare, I am an unclean person. I am a sinful person. I am a bad person. And I am going through this ritual bath which is going to cleanse me, and when I come up out of the water, I'm going to have a new identity. I'm going to be a Jewish person, one of the chosen people. There was also a much more painful uh, precondition for becoming Jewish for the men. They needed to be circumcised. But the baptism of John was rooted in Jewish proselyte baptism. But John did something very strange with that. You know what he did? Instead of proclaiming that message to the Gentiles, he proclaimed it to Jews. You know what he told all those Jews? He said, Jews, you need to change your heart. Like all of us need our hearts to be changed. He said, you're going to have to get rid of your pride. You're going to have to forget about the fact that you're sons of Abraham, as good as that might be. Because before God, you're unclean. You know what it means to repent? It means, first of all, to recognize that you're unclean. Now, it's not to clean yourself up. That's where people get confused about repentance. A lot of people think that repentance is turning over a new leaf and trying harder. And, oh, I feel so terrible about my sin. Now I'm going I'm to really change. And when I get all changed, then I'll come to God. That's why a lot of people are afraid to talk about repentance like we're talking about it today. But that's not what it means. What it means is that you've got to recognize your true condition. And I do too. John told the Jewish people, you are prideful about your religion. 
I could bring it into a modern context. Many people in our town, I say, you know, we, it's such a great thing to have the Savior. I'm so glad to have the Savior in my life. And the very next phrase out of someone's mouth will be, yeah, I'm a member of such and such a body, such and such a church. Never say body. Oh, yeah, I'm a member of this church. What church are you a member of? And I'll say, you know, it, it means so much to me that Jesus Christ died on the cross because I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. And the next phrase out of their mouth will be, I've been teaching Sunday school for many, many years, and we're using such and such a material. And our church is really having a great program. And I'll say, you know, I'm so glad that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And they'll go, you know, we have some fantastic people in our church. There is tremendous potential in our church. You wouldn't believe some of the good people God is bringing to us. And the conversation will go like that. What's happening? What's happening? You see, we're into religion. And people that are into religion don't understand what repentance means. Repentance begins when you see yourself the way God sees you. And when I see myself the way God sees me. John the Baptist cried out to these stony hearts. They were religious hearts. By the way, just to hear John preach, you had to be pretty religious because you had to walk about 30 miles down through terrible terrain just to get there. Well, John preached to people like that and he told him, you got to repent. You got to admit that you're not a Jew, that you're unclean, just like one of those filthy Gentiles. And you need as a Jewish person to submit to this humbling act of being immersed in water, which will be a symbol of your need for being cleansed. Repentance means to recognize the way God sees you. And it means humility. It means humbling your heart. And it means coming to God just as you are and saying, God, I want to change my heart, not just my mind, not just my emotions, not just my will, but my entire being. In Hebrew, when the prophet spoke out to the people to turn, to repent, it was a message of appeal to the entire man. It wasn't just an intellectual thing. It wasn't just responding to some facts. It was a, a recommitment to the person of God. And that's what John preached to the people. Now that also involved, according to Mark chapter 1, verse 5, it says they were baptized in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now I don't know exactly how they did that, but I think it's a very important thing that's very much missing in the modern church today confessing their sins. You see, we all have the idea that you can go through a ritual, you can go through an act, and everything will be all right. I want to tell you something. If you go out today on the ice and run in to somebody's BMW and cream it, say, ah, just the ice, I'm sorry, just no problem at all. Let's just forget about it. You're not going to get much sympathy. That guy will come out flaming angry, probably beat you up. And I want to tell you something. You're going to have problems in relationship. Now, how are you going to make it right? Well, number one, you're going to have to pay for it. 
And the problem with that is that if you're like me, there's no way you could ever pay for a brand new BMW. So you're in real serious trouble. So you better find somebody else that's rich that can pay for it. And second of all, you better look at the owner and you better look at the owner right in the eye and say, I am sorry. Forgive me. Now, we've done a whole lot more with the Almighty God than bang up his BMW. We've done a whole lot more than that. We have wrecked and ruined his kingdom. Our rebellion is the antithesis of everything that he is. We have become enemies. We have wrecked and torn up and ruined the kingdom of God. And what it means to confess your sins, it means to come before him and to admit that, to face the reality of what's going on in your heart. It's one thing I love the gospel so much. I love the scripture so much because it keeps bringing us to the point. You've got to face yourself the way you really are. You need to see yourself for what you really are. And that's why it produces such a beautiful person because out of that honesty, then God can start to build reality into a life. Instead of all this con... That's so much a part of human existence. And confession of sin, the basic meaning of it means to, uh, to, to, to openly agree with God. To agree with his evaluation of our life. To stop pretending. And to come before him and to confess that to him. And these precious people in the first century were coming to John and there were some very humble people that were not doing it just for a show. They really meant it. And they humble their hearts and they acknowledge before God that they were far away, that, were re that they were rebels, and they openly confess that and what joy it brought as they were baptized. Confession of sin was an important part of John the Baptist's ministry. And I think we need to recapture that. I think we need to recapture that sense of openly acknowledging. In fact, you know, the scripture says confess our faults one to another. It says that we should be tender-hearted. We should be forgiving one another. Now, there, there needs to be a balance of the spirit in this. And it means that we need to be careful because there's some things that need to be kept very much between God and ourselves because they could be very destructive in other people. And I have been in situations where an open confession before the wrong people turned out to be used by even the evil one because it broadcast sin much farther than it should have ever gone. But certainly in our own relationship with God, and in broken relationships with other people, the people that are directly involved, there needs to be an open confession. And it's that thing that we all know with our kids when our kids are disobedient and their hearts are hard and they're turning away from us and there's all that breakdown in the family and then suddenly there's a change of heart. I heard on the radio yesterday, you know, just the opposite of that. Um, about, it was about a little kid, I think, at school. Oh, and I, I know it was a little kid that called a friend and got the operator. And really just, you know, I, the parent didn't know where they even got it, but they, they, the little kid just cussed the operator right out and said, you're a real blankety-blank dumb operator. So uh, when the parent heard it, they hit the fan, yelled at their little kid, said, you're going to call up that operator and you're going to apologize. So the little kid... Gets zero, says, hello, is this the operator I just cussed out? The operator said, yes, it is. And the little kid said, well, I'm sorry. 
Will you forgive me? Then he hung up the phone, and the parent, you know, went into another room, went on to other things. As soon as the parent went out of the room, the little kid picked up the phone, dialed again, and says, is this the operator that I just apologized to? The operator said, yeah, and the little kid says, well, you are dumb. And I couldn't help but think, if that's the way we are a lot, isn't it? In fact, I know that I've done that with my kids, and I know my parents did it with me. They'll force that change of heart. You ever had that happen? That's not confession. It's not repentance. It's not openly acknowledging that we're wrong. You know that little heart in Johnny is something that you can't change. You can't manipulate in itself. There has to be a real work of God. In fact, in Luke, Dr. Luke's thinking, this repentance, this confession has to be a gift from God. And there's great human responsibility. We have to change. We have to make that commitment to turn. We have to acknowledge to God, but in a very much deeper sense, when we have that change of heart, there's a great mystery in that, and it says it's a gift from God. And oh, how I pray that that's the way your heart is today, that every one of you have an open, receptive heart to God. The third word is the word forgiveness, a, bapti a baptism of repentance onto the forgiveness of sin. Isn't that a great word? Forgiveness. The Old Testament has some marvelous word pictures for forgiveness. It uses the idea of blotting out. And I like to think of the old school boards, you know, where they used to write with a, black ch with a white chalk on a screechy blackboard. Remember that? They used to erase it, and you could still read everything that was there. How many of you ever seen that? You know, they write all over the blackboard, and they erase it, and then they're writing over everything. Everything gets confused. But I remember in the old days of school, the janitor would come in the very last period and would come in with a wet cloth. And they would take that wet cloth and go over that blackboard. And then it was really gone, clean. And I like to think of the word forgiveness that, that's used in Psalm 51. It means God wipes that slate with a wet cloth and it's gone, it's clean. He uses the idea of blotting it out, putting it farther than the east is from the west. It took me a long time to figure out that word picture. You know, you go east, and I say, well, you come up the other side. When you come around California, you'll be going west. No. Far as the east is from the west, it means that God just completely eliminates that debt of sin. Now, this is the cruncher question. You say, okay, Dave, I understand. Repentance, confession, forgiveness. Now, they all have to do with the inside. They all have to do with internal realities of our life. What does baptism have to do with that? Baptism was the external religious act that pictured all of those words in a very beautiful object lesson. Now, ever since that day that John the Baptist started baptizing, I think that confusion has come in. Because we either go to one extreme to another. We either forget all about external symbols and say, oh, they're not important at all. It's just internal reality. That's one group. Then there's another group that makes the ritual, the external act, really important. And I would say in our culture, the external act is really important. People have a very, very much of a prominent idea. If I get into a tank, if I'm baptized, then that'll make everything all right. And I want to warn you about that. Sinners have an idea, if only I can do something, that'll make things better, especially if you're into remorse. For example, if, if a guy wants to impress a girl and he's lived kind of a bad life, something like that, 
and he wants to turn over a new leaf, it's very easy to go through some kind of a ritual. I've seen it happen again and again. You'll suddenly see guys start to come to church, for example, because they're trying to impress somebody. And they'll go through all the rituals. Be careful, girls and fellas, about that. How do you know you've really got somebody's heart? Now, I can't read hearts, so as a pastor teacher, I don't try. Mary can read hearts, but I can't. Just teasing her a little bit. I don't know. So I had to take people's external words, but I want to share something with you. You can put one over on me every time. You'll never put one over on the Almighty God. And John the Baptist was a preacher that had an external act. Thousands of people, I believe, went to John and I don't know how they did it. It doesn't tell us exactly how to do that. I think the Bible didn't tell us exactly how they did it because we would have made that a ritual, would have made that a fetish. And so we have anyway. We've argued whether they poured it on their heads, whether they sprinkled it on them, or whether they dunked them all the way under. In fact, some groups, that's the whole distinctive, whether you dunk, sprinkle, or pour. We don't know for sure. It doesn't really tell us. But whatever it was, it was supposed to be. One thing I know for sure it was supposed to be a matter of the heart. You say, Dave, how do you know that? How do you know that John didn't just preach an external religious ritual? Because one day, some of the religious leaders, according to the book of Matthew, you find this out, but we'll stay right here in Luke. We find out from Matthew that John especially preached this message to a select group. I want you to look at verse 7. How would you like to go to a preacher like this? You come up to him and, he, and you say, I'd like to be baptized. And this is his response to you. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, and Matthew says he, he cried out to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, You brood of vipers, you snakes! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of one of these stones lying by the road right here, God could raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Man, there he is. How to win friends and influence people. Dale Carnegie himself. Religious leaders, you can see them. They come up, according to the book of Matthew. Long, flowing robes. Great doctors. They're going to get in on the religious movement. You ever notice how people jump on religious movements like a bandwagon? Everybody jumps on. Well, the Pharisees and Sadducees weren't immune to that. It was the in thing. It used to be the out thing, not to follow John the Baptist. Now it's the in thing. Everybody's flocking down to be baptized in the Jordan River. These guys show up, they want to be baptized too. Now, how do I know that baptism to John wasn't just a religious act? How do I know it wasn't just a ritual? Because John looked at these hypocrites, these connivers, and by the inspiration of the Spirit, he could speak in a way that I couldn't speak to people. He could look right into their heart and say, you're a snake. Now, what do you think of when you think of a snake? Well, a lot of us think of slimy things. They're not slimy, but they're slithery. They are slithery. And you think of cunning. You also think of something that's got a real bite, a poisonous, viperous bite to it that's going to wipe you out. It, it kind of strikes you. You know, up in Nebraska, if you're walking through and a prairie rattler gets you, they just seem to come out of nowhere and they hit you. 
And it's scary. It's a frightening thing. Out in West Texas, they have those big rattlesnake hunts. That's probably the closest that we get, you know, to that kind of a thing. Whenever we think of a snake, if somebody says he's a real snake, like they used to call Kenny Stabler, the quarterback for the Raiders and for Alabama, the snake. It wasn't because, you know, he was a sweet, loving kind of a guy. It's because he was cunning. He was a very cunning and, and, and sharp quarterback. And they use it in a positive sense. But we know that it has a real bite underneath that terminology. Now, why did John, why did John call these religious leaders snakes? Because it was all show. You see, all the robes and all the study of Scripture and all the going to the synagogue and all the sacrifices, it was just the form without any real heartfelt commitment to God. Now, in the midst of that group, there was the Nicodemuses, there was the Joseph of Arimathea's, who in the midst of all that ritual still wanted to know God, and they did come to know God. But the vast majority of those priests, the tiller would till, and would beat at their lives. And we're going to see Jesus again and again and again beating on their life, trying to reach them. But they're snakes. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 6 says, You are of your father the devil, which is a terminology that we couldn't help but think of when John accuses these men of being snakes. He said, You are of your father the devil, and the works of your father you will do. You know, the scripture teaches us that there's two kinds of people. We're either children of the evil one, of the snake, or we're children of the Savior. Those are the only two alternatives. And John was a preacher that laid it right in the line. You see, he was mean to them. How could he have ever talked like that? How could he have ever said, you guys are like trees, like fruit trees that I've watched season after season. You never produce any fruit. Why did he talk about cutting it down? Because it was the only way to reach those people. And I want to challenge you to become a truth teller. We live in a society of pragmatism, of playing games with people, of saying the right things. We need to recapture the John the Baptist integrity that loves enough to call a snake a snake and to not let it go by. You know, the thing that just amazes me is how you'll have people for their own personal agendas play all kinds of religious games, and yet the reality of their life is so far from that. John the Baptist loved enough to, to see through that hypocrisy and that intrigue, and he said, you're a snake. And he wasn't being cruel because the only way they could come to real repentance was to admit that they were children of the snake and cry out for God to make them children of God. As long as they hung on to their hypocrisy, as long as they hung on to their pride, as long as they said, we're the sons of Abraham, as long as they still made it a mechanical birth thing, physical birth thing, they could never truly be born again. And John churned away. The tiller hit their lives hard. And also it wasn't just the religious leaders because Luke makes it clear that this external religiosity had become a part of all the people. And so Luke expands what was said to the religious leaders and says it to all of us. You say, Dave, what are the fruits of a changed life? I want you to get, want you to get something. You don't produce oranges to make a tree an orange tree. 
In other words, you don't go out and get an orange and say, here is an orange tree. You don't start out with a fruit and create an orange, although you can add the seed, but you, you'll get what I'm getting at. You see, a lot of times we have an idea, am I a believer? Am I truly a follower of the Messiah? And the issue that we're thinking of is if I have fruits, then that will cause me, that will be what makes me a child of God. It's not the way it works. But there's something else that's an error. And that's the idea that you can be a child of God, you can be a follower of the kingdom, you can be listening to the voice of Jesus Christ, listening to the voice of John the Baptist, and it does absolutely nothing in your life. You say, Dave, how can I know that I've responded to the message? How can I know that? You can know it by the fruit. And the people ask that question. They say to John, John, how can we know that we have the fruit which is the outcome of repentance? It doesn't cause repentance. It is the result of repentance. How can we know that the effects of God are at work in our life? And he says very simply, number one, he says in the very next verses, he says, do you have two, two pieces of clothing on? They would wear two undergarments. Then they'd wear another coat on over that, sometimes another coat on under that. And John is saying, if you've got two pair, and you see a poor man that doesn't have any, you take out one of those pairs and give it to them. In fact, a very wise thing to do as a believer is go through your closet about once a year and take out all that junk that you will never, never, never wear. And some of it's not junk at all. Some of it's brand new stuff. You bought it, but you don't like it anymore. Don't let it sit in your closet. Get it out and get it out to some people that can use it. That's the mark of a believer. In fact, the real mark of a believer is the believers that really are in love with people. When they see needs, they go out and buy brand new stuff for people because they care. You know what else the Lord said? The Lord said, if you got food, share it. If you got food, share it. That's the mark of a believer. The world always recognizes those marks. I've never seen the Salvation Army cussed out by the unbelieving world because they met the food and clothing needs of people. It's an amazing thing when believers do acts of mercy. Not acts of mercy to become a believer, but acts of mercy because we are a believer. That's a message that will go out with great power. I think the Lord has some ministries that he wants to kindle in some of your hearts that we haven't even begun yet. Acts of mercy, clothing, food, meeting the basic needs of people. That's an Old Testament prophet message. The book of Isaiah will say, what are the works that God requires? You know what the fruits of repentance need to be? You know what will totally produce a revival? If we as a group of believers didn't gripe about our taxes and pay them as honoring to the Lord, if we were merciful people, if we did our jobs well for the glory of God, there'd be people born again. Because they would say, wow, their Christianity walks out of Sunday morning right into the marketplace, and I see changed lives. What did John get for it? He got thrown in jail. And you'll get persecuted, there'll be suffering. But it's much better to be in jail in the kingdom of God than on the beach in Hawaii in the kingdom of Satan.